We are continuing in our series uh, through the Shalom Hartman Institute. We are continuing in our Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism course. Um, this particular uh, collection of units, uh, the theme is peoplehood, so looking at different aspects of Jewish peoplehood. As we talked about when we started this, when I started this um, at High Holidays with a conversation about wanting to explore different parts of our identity other than our political identities and um, the ways that we are um, deeply polarized. Let's talk about our Jewish identity and the way that we're deeply polarized. <laughs> we talked last week about different kinds of ways of understanding um, how one is Jewish, the Jew of being, the Jew of becoming. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about um, we talked about what it means to identify with the Jewish people stam, just simply because one is Jewish, the way one is part of a family. And then we talked about um, Jews of becoming who understand their Jewish identities and belonging to a Jewish community to be about what we do, what we stand for, you know, what um, modes of behavior, uh, those kinds of things that that can unify a community. So what we're going to look at tonight is. What is it? What does it mean to be part of a community where we're not monolithic? Because as you'll recall, I launched into like this whole, <laughs> like yeah, either like nodding. I launched into this whole other thing, started crying. Yeah, it was my plan was to cry in class. Um, so I launched into this whole other thing, which really then set off a bunch of other conversations in other parts of my synagogue life and world, and in my rabbinic world, and um, what. And so then when we think about what I launched into, I talked about um, KI really being about being a large tent, this, that this place is really about welcoming everyone home who wants to read themselves into the liberal Jewish project that we're about. So, and, and I will stand by every word I said, and it is a deep conviction of mine that this is now the moral and ethical charge for some of us to answer the really critical poison that's going around. It's, it's part of the antidote, I believe, to the poison that is um, infecting every one of us uh, right now, and not just in this country. What I want to always be honest about is what is the cost of that? Like what, not, not just what's the cost, but what, what does that mean? What are the challenges of that, right? So we kind of know um, and of course, we would come up with the whole reason for this class, polarization, right? So, so you have people in the same tent who are red and blue, Democrats and Republicans. Like that's the easy one that comes to mind. But you might have more religious and less religious. You might have people who are on this side of uh, issues around Israel and on that side of issues around Israel, right? So we have, there's lots of different kinds of folk when you make a big tent that you have to figure out what it means to live together. And I don't want to ever shy away from the challenge of that. So I'm not suggesting that what we're doing here at KI is easy, that it is, you know, comes with no challenges and no issues and no problems. And it certainly comes with a need to think through that. Hartman's approach to any topic we talk about in the Jewish world and in the Jewish community is to look at the sources, to look at our earliest source material first. It's a very reconstructionist approach, right? Look at our earliest source material first and have that be the basis for, from which we have the rest of the conversation, that we frame it Jewishly, because we've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. If you think the Jews are just now trying to figure out how to live together in 2023 America with lots of different opinions about lots of different stuff, 
Have you met the Jewish people? This has always been our challenge. How do you both identify with the community and allow for, even sometimes encourage, celebrate, at least acknowledge a very wide range of thought, practice, philosophy, approach, background, where we see ourselves going in the future, right? Um, all of those things. So I, I want us to really address that um, head on, Hartman does, uh, in this class called Navigating Divisive Communities. So let's, let's go there. Let's look at source number one. You are children of your God. Therefore, Torah doesn't put it in there, v, that conjunctive vav says and, meaning therefore, don't self-gash. This is a reflexive verb in Hebrew. Don't self-gash and don't shave this part of your head between your eyes, lamate for the dead. So the obvious question, thank you for teeing that up. The obvious question is, why would you? Anybody want to posit a guess about why you would do that? Because that's what they did in pagan Canaan. That was what they did. Who knows? Like, seriously, like, there's no explanation. Because first of all, it doesn't even tell us why this is here. We have to assume y'all don't do that because you're children of yod heh That means it's off limits to you. Well, you don't need to tell people, don't eat donuts with horseradish on it. Because people aren't going to do that. The only reason you say don't eat donuts with horseradish on them is because people are clearly doing it. Right? So we know that likely it's here because people were doing it. Who's doing it? Why would Israelites think to do that? Because that's what's being done. Israelites were converted Canaanites. We tend to forget that. We tend to think of this story of Egypt, the desert, Torah, pushing into Israel, being among these pagans. The Israelites were mostly converted pagans. So how do you keep folks from backsliding into a worship of Baal or a worship of the dead ancestors? There was a cult of worshiping dead ancestors, which is very common throughout terrestrial human culture, that you worship ancestors. So maybe part of gashing was once some, when someone dies, you acknowledge by paining yourself in some way your pain at losing them. You know, Kriya? When we tear the Korea ribbon at the graveside, that's part of that. I bet it originated in the flesh. My bet? Tearing one's garment when one hears of the death of a loved one, my bet was you tore your flesh. This is just the anthropologist in me. Um, and if you start to move away from that as a pagan custom that we're not going to mutilate ourselves you know, that way, um, then um, you, you get to tearing the garment. So you you sh- you can't do this because y'all can't do what they do. I'm going to read between the lines and say you can't do what they do. All right. So that makes that makes perfect sense, right? No pine trees in the living room during the month of December, people. I don't care what you're celebrating, right? That that's kind of what Torah is saying. Like just don't do it. We have to assume that that meant you know what it meant. Okay, but that's not the important point. 
The important point is what the rabbis do with this, which is fascinating. What do the rabbis do with this? Sifrei Re'es, so uh, a, a commentary on the, an early commentary on the biblical source says, what does this mean? Lo teach go to do. Don't self-mutilate. <laughs> they play, obviously this was not meaningful to the rabbis. No one around the rabbis or around the Jews living with the rabbis are gashing themselves for the dead. Right? So the rabbis always want to look for another teaching in the words of Torah when the words of Torah don't exactly apply anymore. Not that the words of Torah are not eternally applicable. But if they don't apply anymore, you want to find another interpretation. And they are genius at doing that. So what do they do? They look at this word, teach go to do. Heat pa'el, something one does to oneself. Teach go to do. Well, if you take away the heat pa'el part of it, take away the reflexive part, and you just look at the root of that word, aguda is in Hebrew the, the root of teach god. Teach go to do. So y'all shouldn't mutilate yourselves. Don't read mutilate. Instead, read it from the Shoresh faction. And aguda is a faction. Agudot are factions. Lo teach go to do. Don't factionalize. That is what the rabbis say Torah is actually saying. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So the rabbis aren't worried about them doing pagan rituals from early Canaan, iron to age period what are the worry what are the rabbis clearly worried about separating factionizing themselves uh so this comes from sifre section 96 uh let me check i know that my notes will tell me uh, it's a gloss on the book of deuteronomy codified in the land of israel in the third or fourth centuries of the common era so it's early. This is an early commentary. So this is not medieval. You know, this is not Hasidic. This is this is telling us that in the third to fourth century of the common era, and we know this. Look at Jesus. Look at the Jews who are following Jesus. That's the first century of the common era. It only got worse from there, right? So there was a main, and already before Jesus, there's a split. Between Pharisees, Sadducees, the rabbis, like, you know, there, there are all these, there are all these factions. You've got the, the cult in the desert at Masada. What are they called? At Qumran? Oh, come on, help me, y'all. The folks at Qumran. The, um, the Essenes. The Essenes. Thank you. The Essenes is another faction. Right, so you've got all kinds of factions. We there's lots of literature written on this. First century, second century, obviously is clearly not resolved by the third or fourth century, right? And we know it actually doesn't ever resolve. Bert? Wasn't uh, didn't the rabbis say that the reason for the destruction of the second temple was unjustified hatred? Yes. Jews among Jews. Yes. Is that the same thing. So similar, w- similar. yes, that the. You can be in different factions, which we're going to look at. You can be in different factions and get along. For them, sinat chinam was baseless hatred, meaning if you hate someone for a good reason, that's one thing. Everybody thinks they hate. <laughs> okay, well, and that's what we learned at Hartman was everybody thinks they hate for a good reason, right? You know, so uh, but baseless hatred, yes, is one of the interpretations for the rabbis of uh, the reason. And why do the rabbis need a reason for the destruction of the second temple? Why do they need a reason? Can't they just say, oh, stuff happens? 
Well, there's always a reason. No. They see God behind everything. They see God behind everything. So what's the problem if the second temple is destroyed? Why? They must have been their fault. How could God let that happen? If it's God's house and God's people and God is the most powerful God of all the gods, because we really there's only one God, and God's the most powerful and chose us and that's God's house, how could God let that happen? So the rabbis have to have a reason for the second temple to be destroyed. Or else God might not be all-powerful, all-knowing, or all-good. And that's a problem for the rabbis. Thank God it's not a problem for us. Okay. So, so look where the rabbis go. Lohit go to do means don't, don't do agudot. Don't separate yourselves into factions. All right. Along comes, uh, uh, the Mishnah, Mishnah Yevamot, um, codified in the ra- around the year 200. So a little bit before what we just read. So one was a commentary on a biblical verse. Now we're going to jump to an actual source. And that source is the Mishnah codified uh, in 200, so being written in the first and second centuries of the Common Era. So let's look at that text. So this text comes from from Yibum, from Yevamot. What is Yevamot? What is Yibum dealing with? Yibum is dealing with a man dies and doesn't have a male child to carry his name on. Do you remember in the Bible what happens then? What happens? No, sorry. Yeah, a man dies and doesn't have a son to carry on his name, what happens? His wife marries his brother. The guy who dies, his brother marries the widow. The widow, right. Right. To provide a son for the dead guy to carry on his name. Yeah? Rebecca, right? Am I right? Okay. So so the... The living brother marries the widow so that the widow can have a child that has her dead husband's name. Property went through the men. So this was a way to protect right, people inheriting from the dead brother. Okay, that's not what we're interested in. But that's the background for the laws of the Mishnah in this Masechet, in this Sidra of Mishnah. The topic of these laws is this business of Yibum. All right, so that's the context. You kind of have to know the context or some of this sounds really crazy. Once you know the context, some of this sounds a little crazy. It's okay. I see you back there, Sari Ross. All right, so though these forbid and these permit and these disqualify and these make eligible, we're talking about people, Beit Shammai did not refrain from marrying women from the families of Beit Hillel, nor did Beit Hillel refrain from marrying women from the families of Beit Shammai. With regard to purity and impurity, which these declare pure and the others declare impure, neither of them refrained from using the utensils of the other for the preparation of food that was ritually clean. Are we clear? Good. Okay. You're right. All clear now. All right. So this is talking about the laws of Yibum, the laws of Levitical marriage, right, about blah, blah, blah. So it's talking about joining people together, joining families, you know, together. So something that might come up is, well, what if the living brother has a lot of different understandings about kashrut than the widow, Like the widow and her husband might have agreed. Some say that's pure. We say it's impure. You can eat that. We don't eat that. That's trafe. No, it's kosher. 
right? Well, what if that's the problem between, I mean, one can imagine that's kind of the, the context of the conversation, is if the living brother has a really different understanding of some of that stuff from the dead brother, can they marry? So this is brought forward talking about that to say, well, if you want to know about that, let's look at the fact that there's no bigger division than between Hillel and Shammai, between Beit Hillel, the philosophy of Beit Hillel, and Beit Shammai. Hillel was a little more, it's thought of as a little more lenient. Shammai was very machmir. The, the house of Shammai was very machmir. These are the folks that argue in the earliest arguments we have remembered by the Talmud and the Mishnah are Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. You might know it from Beit Hillel says, Beit Shammai says, we talk about an eight-day festival, they got less oil every night, so you light eight candles and then you go down to one. That's in the Talmud. Beit Hillel says, that would kill the spirit of the Jewish people. You can't do that to the Jews. It doesn't matter that that might have been reality. You light one, and then the miracle just grew and grew and grew, and now you have eight. You have a torch. They argued all the time on everything. It was, and these aren't people. I mean, they might have started as people, but they became philosophies about how to approach the law. Okay, so I know that sounds crazy. Like, why are we studying this? Because guess what? Not a lot has changed. Do we call ourselves kosher? They're really talking about how do you deal with marriage when you you might have really serious disagreements. All right, so this hasn't changed. Would you call this place kosher? Is the synagogue kosher? If people want to come eat here, is it kosher? Depends on for who. Depends what, Linda? Depends on what? Group you follow. Depends on whether you're from Beit Hillel or Beit Shammai. Depends on what are your standards. Do we have to have a hexer on everything that comes into this building? If that's your standard, this building is not kosher. Does it have to have a K? Is that enough? Does it have to have an OU? What if it has none of that? Is this place kosher? There's a lot of people who won't eat here. Because we don't require hashgacha. We don't require a stamp from a rabbinic authority. We go by ingredient kosher. By definition, lots of Jews won't eat here. Okay, we are living with this today, okay? These say it's kosher, these say it's not. What do you do? Hillel and, and Shammai reminds me of Republicans and Democrats today. It, it's kind of the same kind of issue where they're constantly disagreeing. And the question is, can a Republican marry a Democrat? So, I want us, I, I, yes, I want us to go there, but I want us to stay right now in what does it mean for the Jewish family? Because I'm not marrying a Republican, I can tell you that right now. Now I'm clear that's my boundary, right? That's a boundary for me. It's harder when we're talking about KI and we're talking about who do I want to feel comfortable here eating food? That's a different set of boundaries, right? That's a different set of understanding. So we, it's not that this doesn't apply to that, Bert. It totally does, and we're totally going to wind up there. But for right now, how has Jewish, how has Jewish reality of having to live together, how have we addressed this? What does it look like? All right. So Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, right? They disagree. But what is this source telling us? Why is this source brought forward? Because what does it say? It did not prevent them from marrying each other. Well, okay, 
What does that mean? So let's say new brother or, or some family member, because now we're past the brothers and Leviticus, we're in Hillel and Shammai. So folks who follow Shammai's strict kashrut orders marry someone who follows Hillel's much more lenient ingredient kosher, no meat and milk together, no pork, beyond, no shellfish, but beyond that, you know. Okay, so they get married. What do you do in the kitchen? It says they married. What do you do in the kitchen? Get Chinese food. Very nice. Definitely not kosher. I was just from a kosher Chinese restaurant. Nice, Bill. Okay, so, um, so, so that's kind of what we've always had to ask. If Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai are going to intermarry, how do you figure out what you're going to do? How are you going to live together, essentially? So let's look, let's look for, forward in, uh, in these to go to, oh wait, did we, yeah, look, huh? It does not. No, it just says they did. It just says they did intermarry. So that's all we know. So now, of course, the tradition goes on to ask, how did that work? Right, all right. Huh? What? Are we saying? No, these say they're clean, those say they're not. These say they're permitted, those say they're not. They didn't, it did not prevent them from marrying each other, which, if you think about it, makes no sense. If these vessels are clean and that one says no, they're not, can you use them in the kitchen? Who's going to decide that? And it doesn't say who's from which house, right? The men and women intermarried back and forth. So it's not like, oh, well, the men are in charge. Or the women are wait, it doesn't we don't know. What it's saying is it did not prevent them from intermarrying. Okay. Source four. Let's look at that. So this is from the Talmud. And so now they're gonna argue over what exactly when are we charged with unnecessary factionalism? When does thou shalt not factionalize, which they accept, by the way, I love this. The rabbis of the Talmud accept that interpretation of that verse. When they say, when does do not gash yourself apply, they're not talking about gashing themselves. They're talking about factionalizing. They've already accepted, right, the rabbinic interpretation that that's what that means. I love that. You just have to love that. They just take it for granted. Of course it means factionalizing. Oh, that's not what Torah says. That's not what Torah is talking about. But okay. So how? So here's the conversation. Abaye argues. One of our uh, one of our authorities argues. When we say the prohibition "you shall not gash yourself" applies, meaning factionalizing. When we say it applies, we're referring to a case where two courts are located in one city. And these rule in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai, and those rule in accordance with the statement of Beit Hillel. Right? This is Abaye's argument. What are we talking about? Factionalizing applies when you have two courts in one city, some are ruling like Beit Shammai, and some are ruling with Beit Hillel. That's a problem. However... Regarding two courts located in two different cities, we have no problem. Rava says, uh-uh, uh-uh. The dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel is considered like a case of two courts in one city. 
as these two schools of thought were found everywhere, not in any specific place. Meaning every city would have had courts influenced by both Hillel and Shammai, and you had to kind of pick, you know, what your philosophy was. So that's silly to suggest in two different cities it's fine. There is no such city that doesn't have a court, says uh What's his chops? Um, says Rava, you don't have a city where you don't have courts influenced by Hillel and those influenced by Shammai. That's not a thing. Rather, says Rava, when we say that the prohibition you count shall not cut yourselves, meaning you shall not factionalize, applies, we are referring to a case where there's a court in one city, a section of which rules in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai and another section of it rules uh, in accordance with the statements of Beit Hillel. However, regarding two courts located in one city, no problem. What's the argument? This is code. So the people reading and studying this understood the code. That's right. Wink, wink, no, like they understood the code. So the, the concern seems to be that, so Abaye thinks two courts that rule differently in one town, our first arguer, Abaye, Two courts that rule differently in L.A. on the same issue, that's problematic. That's going to cause factionalization and a split in the community. Rava, on the other hand, argues that within a given town, as long as the court has its own system and stays true to its own system, it's fine. It's if you have... The JEC downstairs saying, we believe in Jesus. And the ECC saying, we do not accept Jesus as our Savior. Now you have a problem, you have a real problem, says Rava, that in the same place, in the same court, you have rulings different ways. That's factionalizing. That's going to split the community. That's a problem. Okay. Yes, Matt. Still looks to me like he's saying two opposite things. Who? Uh, Rava. Rava, okay. Yeah, because he says, however, which usually means accept or something like that. Right. Regarding two courts located in one city, we don't have a problem. His however is going back to Abaye. However, that thing that Abaye said, it's not a problem. As long as the court within itself is clear about who it is and doesn't have factions within it, it's fine. He's arguing it against Abaye, who said you can't have two courts in the same city ruling different ways. That's factionalizing. In different cities. It says regarding two courts located located in in two different cities, we have no problem. No, the but last in, sentence regarding two courts located in one city, we have no problem with. Rava has no problem. Abaye has a problem. So he's saying, however, Mr. Rav Abaye, it's not a problem what you thought was a problem. That's not a problem. So he, that's how they do this in code to argue. First, they state their case about what they believe, and then they say, however, what that guy Abaye said... It's not a problem. Abaye said it is. No, it isn't. That's their concluding statement. They don't start with Abaye was wrong. They start with here's our position. And meantime, Abaye, you're wrong. Abaye and and Rava, what are they really arguing about? 
They're arguing about, um, they're arguing, says my curriculum anyway, they're arguing about norms, right? How do you decide what's n- what the norms are so that you don't have factionalization? And for Abaye, a community needs one set of norms because you can't have two courts in the same community ruling two different ways. The norms have to be established within the community, right? And courts establish the norms, remember, because the norms are about what's pure, what's not, what's kosher, what's not, what's halacha, what's not, what's acceptable, what's not. Halachically, that's what they cared about, right? So that's why it's in the court, because it's halacha. They're arguing about Jewish law. So, so that's what, that's what Abaye is arguing. Rava says the norms can differ with each other as long as they're contained in their own place. So we might say the city, Abaye is arguing, it has, the norms for Los Angeles have to be the same. Whereas Rava might argue, you know, the Palisades is technically Los Angeles, but really, really, like, let the Palisades do what the Palisades wants to do. And the Highlands, forget about it. Right? That's the argument here. Two courts in the same city ruling differently. Abaye says you can't have that. The community has to have an agreed-upon set of norms. Whereas Rob says what's normative for the Highlands might be different from Brentwood. Yes. Right. So it, a little bit. Are they just talking about religious law? Here, yes. That's all they have authority over. Let's not forget that. The only thing these people have any authority over is Jewish law. They have zero authority in anything else. Who has authority? No, no, who has authority? The local authorities, the non-Jewish. The non-Jewish people have authority over the Jews in everything except Jewish law. So the only thing they can argue any of this stuff about is about Jewish practice and Jewish law. That's why they're obsessed with it. They have zero power anywhere else. They're not citizens. They can't vote. They have no representation. They have no, they have nothing. Nada. They don't matter, right? They're not citizens. So the only thing they can argue about is Jewish law and where their authority is and isn't uh, within the Jewish uh, world of practice. Okay. So let's think about how does any of this apply here? Should Los Angeles have one set of norms. Now we bump right up against a little town called Santa Monica. And I wasn't here all that long before I started hearing jokes about the Republic, the free Republic of Santa Monica or something. And I didn't get it. I was like, are we not free? Like, I don't understand. And is Los Angeles not free? Um, right. So it's a joke about Santa Monica being like, it's <clears throat> fiefdom. Right, and they have their norms and standards, and it is very different from Los Angeles. And we are right next to each other. So we think of it, like you said, as geography. Like, so should LA have this? Should this region? Like, where? How do we feel about norms and standards, and who imposes them? Are we happy with the way it's divided by the county? Do we care? No, no interest, even from the attorneys, huh? All depends on if your ox is being gored. All right, how about your taxes? Same idea. Hmm? They have their own water, which is why they get to be independent. How do we feel about that? Right. So th- this is what they're getting at, is how do we decide 
Okay, how about let's take the liberal Jewish world. Should we have some kind of agreements about something? About where we stand on some things? Do we not care at all if another synagogue is completely you know, different from where we are on certain issues? So you could argue, Gail, that you, that you, Barbara, you, that we have, um, if we had one norm for everybody, that's more restrictive in a way than if you have lots of different norms within the same community. So surely, yes, that means it's less restrictive. Tell me the argument for why to do that. Why would somebody say, but we want, we want an agreement in this congregation about the status of kashrut in the kitchen? I'm just thinking of it from having more flexibility. If you've got less rigid boundaries, more people could come eat here. So if, if you have less strident, strict boundaries, more people can eat here. What is the argument from the other side? The minute you don't use a heksher, you have excluded a huge part of the Jewish population who won't eat here and won't feel comfortable here and won't eat at the bar mitzvah. That, so this is the constant tension about who sets the norms by what standard. Because <coughs> it's always about then, <coughs> on some level, who's comfortable here and who's not. And so that is the key question. Do we want more people to be comfortable on this end or more people to be comfortable on that end? Years ago, we actually had a committee that I was involved in here <laughs> to decide on the KI Kashrut policy. Yeah, and those, are, those was, are fun. Yes. And it, what the, the issue was not so much whether people would be comfortable here because we knew that no matter what we did, there would always be some people who were not comfortable here. The issue was being clear so that people would know what to expect. Right. And that if they were not comfortable here, that they would not eat here. And that was their decision. And they would not expect it to be one thing and then come here and find out that they violated their principles. So okay. So, transparency. so I think everyone can yeah. say transparency is great. But how do you make these choices? You had to make a choice to exclude the more observant Jews or... Right to ex, you know, or to, and to, and some people would argue if you go more strident, and this is why it always goes more strident. If you go more strident, you're not throwing out the more liberal Jews who want to eat here. They'll eat here. The only people you impact by having a liberal kashrut policy are the people who have a more strident kashrut policy. That's why it always goes with the more strident, in my experience, in the Jewish world. Because what do you care, Amy? If all the meat's kosher, what do you care? But people who care won't eat here if the meat's not kosher, right? So so what gets pushed often is the only folks who are going to be left out are the folks who are more observant. So let's move the line towards more observant all the time because that's more inclusive by definition, right? So you can imagine like how like that makes some of us feel where it's just like, yeah, but how much money is being spent on that meat? Number two, let's talk about the kosher meat industry, shall we? Let's talk about the condition of the lives of those animals. Let's talk about how they actually treat and kill those animals. Like, really? Have you been to a kosher slaughterhouse? Right, so, but those issues, right, tend to be ignored when you're talking about who's in, who's left, who's who's feeling like they're in and who's out um, with some of these issues of observance. So you might say, are there times that you yourself would switch? 
and want a more normative, let's say my mind goes to sexual harassment. You don't have to think it's sexual harassment. I want a code that is so broad and so clear and so inclusive of lots of kinds of behavior that people might say, I don't consider that sexual harassment. Why can I be brought to court on something that I didn't mean in any way to be harassing? Why? Why? That is not my understanding of my behavior or of the behavior of the buddies I hang out with and the women I hang out with. That's not our understanding. Right? So are there times we'd switch and say, I want a more normative, wide approach to everyone getting it and doing it the same way. Because I'm with you about a big tent. The more strident we are about the norms, the less freedom there is and the less people we include and the less points of view we include. There are sometimes I'm like, and that works just fine for me. So part of this curriculum is about having us be really honest about it's not that we in general stand against blah, 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 blah. It's in this circumstance. There are other circumstances in which we would change that and say, uh-uh, I want a broad umbrella of norms, and we agree on the criteria of that, and if it meets that definition, boom. Yeah? I think of COVID. I was so upset with people who wouldn't mask and who had a problem with masking back before we had vaccines. I'm like, are you kidding me? Can't we at least agree that for right now, we're all going to do this because we need to protect the public just because you don't like it too bad. Then don't go out of your house. But that's an unusual response from me, right? But but certainly in those circumstances, I was very much for norms that were very strict and there should be very clear, you know, like consequences for people who are not ready to follow them, which is not how I usually think of myself. So those kinds of times can be challenging. Those circumstances can be challenging for us. And when we come into a community like this, we bring all of that to the table and have to kind of figure out, okay, where am I on which set of issues that we're talking about? Stephen. Okay, but isn't there a fear in the big tent of watering down too much to accommodate more people? Yes, I mean, isn't that what people are most terrified when you say we're going to open it up to everyone? Most, I don't, most terrified of? I don't know. No, I think some are most terrified about bumping into somebody from the other side of the aisle. They're most terrified about having to sit next to somebody who has a different set of relationships to the issues going on in Israel, in this government. I'm not sure. It's that we don't stand. They would say, okay, but you're not standing for my thing. And the other one says, you're not standing for my thing. Is that really the biggest fear? I don't know. I think I think the fear is having to be in community with people that you seriously disagree with on some serious issues. Not just issues, but like your Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai had serious disagreements about their philosophy, about how to make norms and standards. What if we really disagree on that? How am I supposed to sit at the Shabbos table with you? What if I get sat sat next to you? So you're not really, you're saying big tent but you're saying big tent with rules or big tent with guidance to accommodate multiple opinions. We, we all set norms of some kind. So what these texts are bringing up is that we've always had that conversation. We've always in our earliest literature had conversations about who decides and how, when you disagree, like when you have, and this was a big tent, there there wasn't a, there wasn't a choice. The Jewish tent was a Jewish tent, and you were stuck in it. There wasn't another option. You couldn't opt out unless you converted to Christianity or Islam. 
They were stuck together. Now, how did you impose some kind of boundary? We don't marry those people. That's the choice. That's the only way you can say we're going to stay separate. That's the line is to say, you know what? We don't marry people who don't have a hexer on the things they put in their kitchen. Do you know what I'm saying? Otherwise, they had to be in the same community. They had no choice. So we don't. We have a choice whether or not to associate with the Jewish community. But once you are in, the conversation becomes something about how big is the tent? Are there norms? What are they? And where are the boundaries? What's what's outside the norms? And we're gonna we're gonna go uh, partly there next. We're kind of treating all these norm questions as individual decisions, but they all kind of cluster together, right? I mean, ultimately, it's like who sets the rules, and if you kind of have a modern viewpoint, you say, well, we should adapt the rules so that they're the modern world, and other people see a real value in tradition, and maybe the the rules are not yours to bend, and so, I mean, that's why the, you know, so you laid out a bunch of different choices being some strict, some not, but they kind of cluster in certain ways. What what do you mean cluster? Talk to me about cluster. Um, Sort of the classic, you know, do you consider yourself, you know, modern in the sense that, you know, you're going to adapt the rules to the modern world? Everyone has to. Well, but some people do it much less than others. Everyone has to. Is a microwave kosher? Can you put meat in a microwave and then dairy? What do you have to do in between? You can't have the same oven for, right? So everyone has to adapt. It's a question of by what criteria criteria, do we adapt? And and, yes, yeah. And and they do cluster. Um, You know, so if you you decide one way on one thing, you can probably, if you tell me how you decide on one thing, I can probably guess pretty well how you decide on a bunch of things. Okay. That's another conversation that would be interesting to have, like where you see those, like where we would make those assumptions. And where we wouldn't, right? Okay, let's look at anything else on that. If At home, if you want to ask a question, please use the raise the hand function because it takes you up to the top left corner of mine and Rebecca's screens so we will see you and know to call on you. I just want to mention the assumption here is that counter to some American practice, it's not the individual's decision. Correct. That the community, that there are standards and that, quote, freedom to do things doesn't trump the community standards of what's right. Pardon your pun, but um, your yeah, I understand. Your uh, right. So individuality was not a huge concern in the traditional texts we're looking at, because that was not an understanding or a philosophy about how one lived. Nor did one have the capability to make individual decisions. You didn't live by yourself. You lived with a whole bunch of other people, right? This isn't about rights, it's about responsibility. It's about both. We have the right to not marry your people. We as a a family unit, we as a clan, have the right to not marry your Kleinman contaminated, impure clan. Um, Right? But that's usually it's not an individual decision because the families make the decisions about who's getting married to whom. Okay. All right. Source number five. Another one of our Amoraim Rabbah. Rabbi Abba said that Shmuel said, by the way, we always teach in the name of our teachers. According to Jewish tradition, if you don't teach in the name of the person who taught it to you, you're stealing. You always credit your teacher who taught you this with whatever it is you're about to say, which is why you always hear me say, so with Rabbi Lauren Birkin in our workshop last week, 
people think, why do I need to know that? Because that is how we are raised and taught that um, you always credit your teacher or you are stealing. Rav Ava said that Shmuel said, his teacher, Shmuel, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed. One argument. There was one argument for three years over one issue. We're not told what it is because they don't want us to go down that road again. But one topic they argued about for three years. This said the halacha about this issue is in accordance with our opinion. And this said the halacha is in accordance to our opinion, like every argument. Ultimately, what happens? A bat kol, literally the daughter of a voice, meaning a divine voice, it's feminine, comes down and proclaims, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. However, the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Hillel. The Gemara, so the commentary on the Talmud, I mean on the Mishnah, asks, uh, if both these and these are the words of the living God, why was Beit Hillel privileged to have the halacha established in accordance with their opinion? If we're saying both of these opinions that are absolutely contradictory are both the words of the living God, meaning correct interpretations of Torah and Torah law given by God at Sinai, they're both correctly interpreting, how come Hillel wins the day? Hillel, uh, and so since both the reason is that they were agreeable and forbearing. The folks of Hillel, guess guess who wrote this stuff? Um, <laughs> they were agreeable and forbearing, showing restraint when affronted, and when they taught the halacha, they would teach both their own statements and the statements of Beit Shammai, which you have to do, right, according to Jewish tradition. Moreover, when they formulated their teachings and cited a dispute, they prioritized the statements of Beit Shammai to their own statements in deference to Beit Shammai. Imagine you're having an argument about whether or not, which is happening right now, whether or not abortion medication should be taken off the table. It's been accessible for 20 years. Should it be taken off the table? Imagine if you said, okay, there's a machloket, there's a there's an argument about whether or not that should be the law. Right? There's a real legitimate disagreement here. Whose opinion would you state first? I don't know about y'all. I'd say, they're wrong, and here's why. <laughs> right? Here's why it should remain legal. Blah, 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 blah. The Talmud says the reason both were completely legitimate, and I don't believe that in the case I just gave you, but let's say there was something where the tablecloths can be, you know, black or navy blue, and it's completely legit either way. Why would Beit Hillel win who said navy blue? Because they said, you know, the school of Shammai teaches that black is a really important color and the night sky is representative of mystery and we want that and blah, blah, blah. And they would go on and explicate why the house of Shammai argued what they did. We as the house of Hillel, we disagree. We think but navy blue is the color of the deeps of the sea, blah, 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 right? So imagine, first of all, I don't think that ever happens. Obviously, that didn't happen. What this is, though, I think, is a teaching by the rabbis of how it should be. You can disagree 
that's fine. And you can actually both be right in many really important ways. Think about child rearing. Have you ever had any arguments as a couple about child rearing? Anyone in this room? Sometimes your co-parent, if you have one, is, is just as legitimate. No. No. <laughs> I see you in the back of the room. So, <laughs> at least it's an honest crowd. So, you could have totally, like, different perspectives, and you can both agree what, what often happens in mature parenting, successful, healthy parenting, is you're right and I'm right. We have to be on the same page. We have to agree for the sake of the kids. We have to align, and we have to figure out which one of us is winning this one. Because we're both right. It's just different styles. It's just different, you know, values that each of us are accentuating or whatever, however you want to talk about it. What's important is that we have to make a decision for the kids. So dad thinks, wimp that he is, right? Dad thinks, you know, but and, and he's right. However, we've talked about it. And you know how I feel about this. And dad agrees with me. Mom agrees with me. Whoever agrees that we're going to do it my way this time. This is what's going to happen. That's what they're saying. That you can honor the thinking and the philosophy and how someone got to a different position than you, even directly oppositional to you, and still be respectful of how you present that when you're actually talking about it, when you're really actually discussing it honestly as an issue. Okay? That's really hard for us. And I think the rabbis know that. But that's why it took a bat call. That's why it took a divine voice, right, to kind of come down and, and say, gam vagam, y'all and y'all, yes. And the ones who behaved with a certain demonstration of character carries the day. That's what trumps everything, right, in this, in this argument and in this debate. I think that's an important point that the rabbis are making. Tone, respect, right, that, that's what, uh, for them, is what wins the day. All right. So, so there's theoretical pluralism, says Hartman, and practical pluralism. And those can be held in tension. That, that can cut, like, right? So I can theoretically believe there's lots of legitimate ways to approach a certain issue, but practical pluralism is much harder. How does that work out practically? I might honor and respect that someone has a very different, people in this building have a very different way of approaching things, but we have to have a prayer book for the high holidays. We have to have prayers that we're going to say and prayers we're not going to say. Right? right? Like the, the, there comes a point where practical pluralism is really hard. Where do you draw the lines around that? If theoretically you're fine with what the other folks suggest, Right? In Duluth, it's like we want the organ and we want the best voices. We don't care if they're Jewish voices. All of our soloists are not Jews. And I'm like, wait, what? Okay, so a, a big organ on Friday night, non-Jewish soloists who don't know anything about what the liturgy means, but they sing it really nicely, okay, and in robes and very formal and whatever. And then the Saturday morning folks say, we don't use an organ, God forbid, on Shabbos. And you better believe the only people singing the liturgy better be Jews. So they lived together under one roof because they were one Jewish community. They had no choice. All the other synagogues closed. It was the last synagogue out of nine. 
and I was the rabbi, right? So it's like, I was told. So here's how we figured that out. We have theoretical pluralism. We agree. People should be able to celebrate Shabbat, whatever feels Jewishly right and appropriate for them. We cannot do that practically at the same time. We can't not have an organ and have an organ in the same service. Or have only Jews singing and only non-Jews singing in the same service. So they gave Friday night to the classical reform Jews and Saturday morning to the conservative Jews because it was a merged synagogue, reform conservative. So there, there are those tensions that live constantly in a community that has an appreciation at all of theoretical pluralism. There are some that don't. There are some that say, you know, no, let's cluster these things together. And then when it comes to these things, there's not a discussion. There's only one right way to approach them. But if you have theoretical pluralism, you're still challenged by, like, right? What did I say? By practical pluralism. Okay. And then for us, what, you know, do some of those uh, make us switch sides? All right. Um, and then uh, go, just for one second to go back to the question of Hartman asks a really good question. Going back to the Hillel Shammai the fact, the way that Hillel presented Shammai's arguments and the character of the person making the argument is what carries the day in their mind with the divine voice. Think about for yourself, because I had to think about it. Are there people who you would listen to on the opposite side of an issue from you that you care about if they had the character and the way of presenting it that was deeply respectful of other opinions? Like I really had to think about that. Right. So I was so what I came to was, you know, I'm often in an interfaith context and you're trying to develop relationships because we know that across beliefs and across practices and across whatever, what holds us together is relationship. So what makes us close to the Presbyterian Church or to Corpus Christi is my relationship. It used to be Stevens. He did a beautiful job of creating those relationships and trust between him and Father Kidney. Now it's me you know, and me and uh, the folks at the Presbyterian Church. Right? So it's relationships. So let's be honest. Well, certain elements of certain religious practices in even our community are based on proselytizing. And I usually would say, thank you very much. This is where, this is where I leave. Because you're coming after my people. And you're coming after my people who are unchurched, especially. But you're also coming after my people. And that's where I draw a line. You're trying to take Jews and convert them to a different religious tradition. And that's where I draw a line because that's not respectful. Well, what if you're at lunch? And what if you're listening to are the stories of the missionaries going out from that person's church, who you are trying to build a relationship with, who you really respect and admire and want to have lunch with every month. Guess what? I heard it a little differently. I had to hold it a little differently because of the character of the person I was talking to. I had seen it demonstrated many times as a gracious, loving, honest, caring, responsible person in our community. And it's just like, is that where my line is now that I'm dealing with this person? And so I want you to know that this kicks up real stuff for me too. Real questions about where are those lines and where does the character of the person, you know, discussing something way on the other side of what I believe in is right to even do, it, it did for me.
it changed my tolerance, right, for the reality of that um, in ways that I was not prepared for. Anything else on that before we go to our last source? Yes, Stephen. Do you feel sometimes that the ambiguity of Reconstructionalism and the Reconstructionalist movement makes it harder to sort of go toe-to-toe with some of this kind of recruiting? Does the fact that Reconstructionism isn't more strident about certain things, does that make it harder to go toe-to-toe with what? With those who are trying to... To convert Jews? Convert Jews. That's a really good question. I think Jews are not involved in a conversation to even know what Reconstructionism does or thinks or stands. So I think that's number one, the ignorance. Um, And I'm not blaming people for being ignorant. I'm saying we've not... Ask my child what Reconstructionism is. Go ask Eliana Bernstein what it's about. We like to pour them and like have a really good time. She doesn't know. So we've not imparted enough wisdom about what liberal Jewish anything is, I don't think many of us, I'll say just for myself, many of us, um, to have our kids feel like they are equipped to answer but challenge Eliana Bernstein on anything about being Jewish, and boy, she's in your face so fast. So there's identity that's really clear where they are missing the ability to stand toe-to-toe with folks who try to convert them is actual information. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think this is why this class was really important to me, because I think kids with a strong Jewish identity are not in danger. I really, I really do believe that. If they have a thick Jewish identity, they're going to call somebody as soon as they get home and go, okay, so what is this thing about they said in the Torah? It's talking about Jesus. But they're not going to say that there. They're going to say, what are you talking about? Right? Like they, kids who don't have a strong Jewish identity are very vulnerable to the proof texts that missionaries bring to convert Jews. They're very vulnerable. Now, Do you want to equate, and I'm not saying you, does one want to equate that with the liberal spectrum, or do you want to say, we're going to cluster these issues over here that the folks over here, that's not going to happen to their kids, because they know those texts. They know Torah, right? They know exactly what blah, 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 you know, what verse they're pulling out is. I I don't, I don't buy it completely, but I do see where, where the, I can tell kind of that line where kids become very vulnerable. Well, maybe if we can't teach them what the Torah is, at least we can teach them what it means. So that that I would say, and you can tell me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but I would say that's what having a thick Jewish identity is. Okay. They may not know what the Torah says, mm-hmm. but they know what it means. And they know it means God ain't got no child that ain't me. I can't show you what verse that's in, but that's what I know. That's a strong, thick Jewish identity. God has all of us as children, duh. Right, right. So they can't tell you how they got there or where the verse is, but they can tell you that's what Jews, that's what we believe as Jews. It's a great point. That's a great point. So Stephen asked, he said, our kids may not know what the Torah says, but do they know what it means? And I said, I think that's the same thing that I was saying. Do our kids have a thick Jewish identity or a thin Jewish identity? Kids with a thin Jewish identity are vulnerable, in my humble opinion. 
kids with a thick Jewish identity, I feel, are much less vulnerable, even though they don't know what the Torah says, to argue with these people. They know something about what it means as lived out in our Jewish lives, right? That they have a thick Jewish identity, which is something about meaning. They can't tell you anything necessarily about what the Torah says. And I was just, I was just saying that's my interpretation, but I needed to check out with Stephen. Does that check out with you? Okay. Does that align? Okay. Yeah. No, thank you for asking. If any, please, it's always better for me to clarify. Like I would much rather people go home with, okay, I, I, that, that got in in a different way. Don't you hate it when you went to math class? I sucked at math um, until I got it. Then I was amazing. But it took me forever to get it. And I would raise my hand and ask, like, I don't understand how X equals 4. And the teacher would just go through the whole example again, doing exactly what they'd done six times before. It's like, how does that help me understand it any better? So it's not until someone says, you know, help clarify that we can, you know, get into a, a way of talking about it that does make sense. Okay. So finally, we're going to go to Doniel Hartman himself, uh, president of uh, Shalom Hartman Jerusalem. Yehuda Kurtzer is the president of Shalom Hartman America, North America. All right. So this is from some of y'all have heard this. You heard this when I first got back from Hartman because it blew my mind. Um, but some of y'all haven't. So Doniel Hartman, Pluralism, Tolerance, and Deviance, in a book he wrote into published in 2007, The Boundaries of Judaism. In trying to find the balance between the search for commonality and the reality of difference, social structures use three primary categories to assess, classify, and ascertain which difference is allowed and which is not. These three categories are pluralism, tolerance, and deviance. Pluralism is that category which assigns equal value to certain differing positions. Black tablecloth or navy blue tablecloth. At the foundation of pluralism lies, as Isaiah Berlin states, the recognition that human goals are many, not all of them commensurable, and in perpetual rivalry with each other. Those in a pluralistic community are cognizant of the difference among members, but are able to perceive equal value in a multiplicity of positions. While pluralism does not necessitate the acceptance of all positions, it is not to be equated with relativism. It does recognize the possibility of equally valuable, though differing goals and values, which cannot be graded on a scale so that it is a matter of inspection to determine the highest. Meaning you really believe someone else's position is just as valuable as yours just different from yours. You come to different conclusions, but they're equally valuable. Okay. I had two friends with the same kind of cancer. Both were given exact same diagnosis. One said, I want surgery now. The other said, heck no, you are not invading my body. If there's another option, can I change my diet? Can I change this? Can I take supplements? Can I check with you more frequently? What can be done? Right. Both are perfectly healthy today. Who is right? They are equally valuable, those different approaches. That's pluralism. Each one of those responses are equally valid. Okay? It's for the person to decide. They come to different conclusions, radically different conclusions, either mutually exclusive conclusions even, but they're, we really believe they're equally valuable. As distinct from pluralism, tolerance is reserved for difference which one believes to be wrong. Right? Tolerance means I think you're wrong, 
but I'm okay with you being wrong, right? I feel this way a lot. <laughs> Just, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> like, I'm very tolerant. Um, <laughs> as 20th century English moral philosopher Bernard Williams argues, toleration, we may say, is required only for that which is in principle intolerable. Like, in principle, that's wrong. I don't want it to exist. But because you hold that opinion, Matt Ross, okay. Like, you're wrong, but I love you. So it's okay. Going gonna... back to what you were saying a minute ago, you talked about things being equally valuable. But at one point, you used the word equally valid. And I want to know... Do you think that there's a difference between those two concepts? I think if it's based on opinion, not necessarily. If it's based on, okay, scientifically, if you actually do more research and blah, 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 you'll find that that finding is not valid. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a, I think valid is about what's, what's concretely able to, or maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know if I, if I find those terms different. I'm not sure I'm understanding what you mean by the word valuable. That, that I, that pl real pluralism means, wow, so Phil came to the conclusion that striped shirts are, are something one would want to wear. Okay. I can understand that he might look in the mirror and see a striped shirt as something really nice to wear. I never in a million years. But that's just me. It doesn't look good on me. His is equally valuable a style choice. Truly equally valuable. I have right no judgment about you wearing not judgment. I don't want to use I don't want to use laden words. It really is a, a perfectly legitimate style choice. It's not mine. That's real pluralism, right? Okay. Tolerances stripes are heinous and should really never be worn. But I love Phil, and if he feels good in that shirt, he's wrong. But he can wear it. That's his right. I'm not going to tell him what to do. Do you see the difference in that? Yeah. One is you really don't, you're, there's no way you're going to get to one's higher, one's lower. It's just his style. The other one says, it doesn't work for anybody. No one should wear them. But it, what am I going to tell him what to do? It's not my job. Like, let him wear what he wants to, right? But I believe my opinion is actually right. And stripes should not be worn. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's pluralism and tolerance. That's the difference between pluralism and tolerance. So I'm trying to According to Hartman. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of this in sort of a culture of argumentation. Uh -huh. And there are certainly people who, you know, think differently than you, but you love arguing with them, discussing, because you find the way they think and, and their, you know, articulation of their values interesting, right? And so it... And then there are people which, you know, you kind of tolerate, but you don't really want to talk with them about this topic. And then there's the, you know, people are so awful on a topic that you don't even want to deal with them. So I, I think it fits into the, you know, sort of pluralism, you know, tolerance, deviance, but the pluralism is, is less settled than your, than the, the what? Theory. Pluralism? The pluralism is less settled because it's like, you know, I'm not, saying that they're necessarily, I mean, I think I'm right, I think you're right, but I think you're fun to talk to and, you know, really insightful. So, you know, the, the conversation, the I'm always trying to convince you, you're always trying to convince me, and that's kind of what we do, right? 
whereas there are people who you just tolerate, like, oh, you're, you're mentioning that again when we talk about the weather. Right. So, so part of that is about deal. what we're drawn to, what, we, what we're averse to, and what we're drawn to. So that's kind of a different strata of categories than when we're talking about positions and decisions about who's in and who's out. Okay, it's a little different. I can hear some people talk about their grandchildren. Oh, my God. Is that tolerance? I don't think it applies. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's stuff we want to hear about, stuff we don't want to hear about, stuff we're interested in, stuff we're not. I think it's a slightly different set of categories. Yeah, I would say in some sense, sort of the, the, the quality of my perceived quality of their argumentation and their value structures and you okay, know, when, so when we're not talking about that. Okay. We're talking about your underlying belief. Are they wrong? Or are they legitimately just holding a different opinion? Forget about whether you like talking to them about it. Are they right on their own? Or are they wrong? All right, we're going to move on because I want to get to this last category. And then we can talk more if we want about the, the uh, nuances of that. The negative appraisal of that which is tolerated. Remember, tolerance means... Stripes should never be worn by anybody. It's just wrong. But it's still. The negative appraisal that defines tolerance, right? However, need not engender either defense, defensive or punitive measures, but can in certain circumstances activate a response of tolerance which in essence involves allowing leaving undisturbed something which you think is wrong. The individual in question remains a member, an insider in the full sense of the word, a person with whom one shares one's collective space, despite the disapproval that his or her behavior may engender. They're fully inclusive. They're fully an insider, even though you really think they're wrong. And that's what we're talking about here when we talk about a big tent. That's really what we're talking about. I think you're wrong. You're still a full member of my community. I consider you fully an insider at KI. You are legitimately a member just like any other one of us. And I think you're wrong. Okay? That's tolerance. Once it is recognized that difference is not a passing episode, but rather an inherent facet of all social structures, it is precisely tolerance which serves as the foundation for these structures' survival and viability, argues Hartman. What is important about tolerance as distinct from pluralism is that it allows fellow members to live together despite not merely differing from each other, but also actively, I would add, disagreeing. Right? Just pluralism has its, just as pluralism has its limits, so too does tolerance. Independent of the question of truth and the significance of debate and disagreement for human development, from a sociological perspective, boundaries must be erected, quote, for each regime of toleration must be singular and unified to some degree, capable of engaging the loyalty of all of its members. So, you can, I can totally disagree with you. But if you're going to come in here and say, you know, Hitler was just as right as anybody else. That right now, now, now we're talking, we're talking about something else. For me to remain loyal to you as a member with whom I disagree, there has to be some unity, right? To some degree, or we can't coexist and and have loyalty to one another as members. There is no viability for social life without some notion of boundaries and limits on the difference which it can accommodate, right? 
You can't be here and say, I'm a Jew for Jesus. Right? There, there has to be some, right, boundaries. Without these boundaries, it becomes impossible to locate the common core by virtue of which fellow members affiliate with one another and form a social entity. That which serves to demarcate and govern these boundaries is the notion of deviance. Here's the third category. Deviance. As distinct from difference, which is assessed as tolerable and as such left alone, striped shirts, deviance is that conduct which is generally through to require, what? Generally thought to require the attention of social control agencies, that is, conduct about which something must be done. Five miles over the speed limit is, guess what? The police have decided, is what? Tolerable. 30 miles over the speed limit? That's deviance. So some amount of, like, stepping over the line... Every community has it. Everybody kind of agrees. There's got to be lines. Whatever. You can step over them. We can disagree, blah, blah, blah. But there comes a topic, I mean, a, a category which is deviance. Something about which, so, something, yeah, about which something must be done. The dividing line between deviance and tolerance and the relationship between them is, however, far from stable or clear. This is where I feel we have the greatest challenge today. This is our greatest challenge. What is tolerance and what is deviance? And where is that line? And we're going to have another line that's even more important, I think, um, one more that shades the difference between two kinds of deviance. Further, compli- further complicating matters is the fact that there is a line of tolerance that often passes through deviance itself, distinguishing between two types of deviance, and here it is, that which is tolerated and that which is not. Now the notion of a tolerable deviance seems like an oxymoron. If we said deviance means it's outside what's tolerable, what are you talking about tolerable deviance? Deviance is by definition now, which is not tolerated. In what sense then can we speak of deviance, which is? While many forms of deviance generate upon detection, uh, and, uh, upon detection, they generate an immediate response, there are in reality many others that communities decide to leave alone. As anyone who has ever crossed the street at a red light in plain view of a police officer can attest, neither all rules nor all violators are treated equally. While functionally tolerated, these unenforced laws and boundaries serve at least to define what is understood by the community to be correct behavior and representative of its values and norms. One of the more interesting and prevalent examples of tolerable deviance is adultery. While universally condemned in almost every moral system, it nevertheless remains generally unsanctioned, both legally and socially. Think about that for a second. Everyone agrees. Adultery is deviance. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. However, in general, it's a tolerated deviance. It's tolerable deviance. Not maybe to the marriage partner. But in society at large, we all would agree that is a deviance. That's not tolerable. And yet, I mean, in other words, that's where I say tolerance. No, we have no tolerance for that here. But when it happens, well, you know, it happens. 
As distinct from deviance which is tolerated, the intolerable deviant is one whose transgression is considered to be so severely contravened communal standards that it is that it has constituted a renouncement of core values and jeopardizes the integrity of shared cultural space. In this case, silence or closing of the collective eye is neither possible nor desirable, and the community responds in a variety of ways. In its most extreme form, doing something involves expulsion, stripping the deviant of their membership status, and severing all personal and collective ties. It is this forsaking and forsaken figure that one can term the true outsider. Adultery, it's deviance. It's, in general, tolerable deviance. You don't expel them from the community. What if they slept with a seven-year-old? Intolerable deviance, right? There's a line past which one says, that is deviant, but it is intolerable deviance. You've now violated core principles of the community in such a way that you have now earned expulsion because of the behavior, right? Tolerable deviance, five miles over the speed limit. Intolerable deviance, 50 miles over the speed limit, driving under the influence. Now you're going to jail. Now you have a record, right? Now you, right? Yeah? So, so what, what he's getting at is we have these categories, we just don't necessarily talk about them, but we have them as a community. And then we struggle with the line sometimes between tolerant and deviant. That's a big line. But I think, I think a really big one too is tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance. And I'll tell you where it shows up most is Israel. Tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance, I think one of the most painful places we are trying to decide what's what is around Israel. In our movement, to go to what you said, they are the big thing about tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance is what about rabbis who do not consider themselves Zionists and are ready to say that out loud? That has been intolerable deviance till now. So part of what Hartman is lifting up and talking about the boundaries of Judaism and, and for us Jewish communal life, living together in community, is what's intolerable deviance for KI around the conversation about Israel? Is someone who's here and vocally says, I am anti-Zionist, I don't believe there should be a Jewish state, there should be a state that Jews live in and have full rights and responsibilities, but so should everyone else who lives there. Is that tolerable deviance or intolerable deviance? And I think that's a painful line that we are really walking right now. The other one I'll tell you is circumcision. I am having a lot of conversations. The physician over there might have something to say, but I'm having a lot of conversations with particularly mothers who do not want to circumcise their sons. They've done the research. They know the science. And they buy the argument that it was all trying to justify circumcision and because of different things about how you didn't teach boys how to clean themselves, it led to infection and whatever, but a lot of it was to sell circumcision. And they don't buy it. We're mutilating baby boys, and I don't disagree with them. But it is intolerably deviant right now to say, I will not circumcise my son 
I think I could be wrong. You tell me. But I think that is another painful place that's coming. It's only going to be more and more and more, I think. A place of is it tolerable deviance or intolerable deviance for a boy to become a teenager and a man who's not circumcised and was raised as a Jew. I don't know. I see it as a very painful place of people trying to decide if it's, is that going to get them somehow like marginalized in a way that they won't be a full-fledged member because they stand against, right, stridently against something that is considered what you have to do to be in the circle. All right, George, you've been wanting to say something. The whole concept of inclusion uh, back in the old days, my mother used to, when she read, read the newspaper, she would say, is it good or bad for the Jews? Uh, and now, uh, with the issues, some of the issues being raised, it's not a simple question. Uh, but one of the examples, when you talk about norms, it's for what group? For example, you talked about the... Uh, uh, the, uh, the man who marries... Uh, the widow, the brother who marries the widow, and they have different kashrut rules. Uh, that's for that group. Uh, that at least in KI, it's not for the group, the institution of KI. It's for the group of that couple. That KI accepts that without a problem. So oh, yeah, but but George, we do have lines. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Right. We no. have tolerance and deviance around marriage. Yes. We do. We do. Yeah. I'm listening. To Whether we want to admit it yes. or not, if if a Jew marries a practicing Catholic, lots of people in this community have feelings about that and about what it means to raise kids going to church and coming to synagogue. Yes. I'm people have very strong that. feelings about that. Yes. You're saying it's up to the couple. Of course it's up to the couple. What we're talking about is what are the norms and where does a couple fall in the sense of, is it tolerable? Is it deviant? And if it falls in the category of deviance, is it tolerable deviance or intolerable deviance? I'll give you an example. What I just said, Catholic Practicing Catholic married to a Jew who takes the kids to church and then they come here on Friday night. I would say for us, generally speaking, that is deviance. It is tolerable deviance, meaning we don't do anything about it. Don't ask, don't tell. I think if it's a fundamentalist church that preaches that Jesus is going to save the Jews from their mistaken blah, 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 and that's where the kids are going. That is intolerable deviance. Yeah, I don't I'm, believe kids that would come here spouting that from what they just learned last Sunday, that would not be a tolerable deviance here. So it's not just up to the couple. Yes, it's up to them whether or not they get married. But there is an implication for their belonging yeah, to KI yeah. based on norms and standards and based on Hartman's understanding that there is pluralism, tolerance, and deviance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm agreeing that there yeah. are a lot. And I'm just saying the, the one that you originally brought up was such. <laughs> right. right. But uh, all I'm saying is it, in the biblical period, George, some of these would have been deal breakers. The same way I'm talking right now. 
those couples getting married would have been, there would have been deviance, tolerable deviance, and intolerable deviance. We've just changed what all those categories mean. Yes. But that's what they're arguing about in the Mishnah. They have real concerns about, is that going to be intolerable deviance between the couple and their families? Okay. Yes. Okay. If you want to say more about this, I'm happy to talk to you Friday. Yeah. If, if there's more to say. All right. So to conclude, where does this leave us? What, 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 what did we just learn? Like, why is this a fruitful conversation? Because I think the, for me, the more I can identify what's going on that's making me crazy, the better I am at then being able to bring a more thoughtful, reflective, sane, calm, tolerant approach to something that might even be triggering. And this language and categorization is very helpful for me to think as a, as the leader of this community, which we are trying to have be a very big tent, these things become the, the, the thing that we're grinding against that sometimes we don't talk about. Sometimes we just react to. Sometimes I have to hold, not knowing exactly what's happening. But I think determining that, okay, th- th- there's a line that we've decided is deviance. And that's what's happening here. Now we have to kind of figure out what's tolerable deviance and what's intolerable deviance. And that line shifts and moves. That's what's challenging. We used to didn't care if our kid married a Republican or a Democrat. We didn't care. You just, you go to the voting booth and you do what you do. The line has moved, right? From pluralism. I grew up with, I didn't know what people's parties were, right? I grew up with pluralism. A democracy is all about pluralism. And the more pluralism, the more ideas, the more way, different ways of thinking about things, the better. That's how I was taught. That's how I grew up. That my father went to war. He went to the Korean War to fight for that. I heard about it all the time. Risked his life. Yeah, cooking and driving an admiral. But okay, whatever. So he, um, he taught us and instilled in us that that's patriotism. It's a stand for everyone to be able to believe what they believe, say it out loud, vote how they want. That's democracy. Well, in my lifetime, that has shifted a lot. Now for me, I'm not a pluralist in this country about political parties. I am tolerant on a good day, right? I think you're wrong, but I respect your right to vote for who you want to. I think you're wrong. I still believe we should be able to vote for who we want to, right? So most times I'm tolerant, but there are times I am very clear that something's deviant. You vote for don't say gay, that's deviant to me. Now you've stepped over a line. You want to come defend DeSantis' position in Florida on don't say gay in schools? You want to come defend that to me? I'm going to tell you to your face that's deviant. I mean, I, I wouldn't use that language. I wouldn't know what I was talking about. But I would say you're flat out wrong. And you know what? I really don't want to have this conversation because, like, <laughs> there's nothing you're going to say to me that, like, I'm that this is not going to be fruitful. I can tell you that right now. That's deviance, right? And so where those lines are, I think it's just very helpful for us to be thinking about that in our lives when we watch the news, like when we think about what sets us off and and what sets our teeth on edge and why. And then as a Jewish community to decide, okay, so are we okay with where those lines are now? Do we want to see them move in one direction or another? Some people would like to see them move very clearly towards, let's be very clear about what's deviant, tolerable deviance and intolerable deviance. Some of us are like, well... 
let's not be so quick to you know, like draw hard and fast line, you know. So, so our instincts around how fast and those lines move um, and how far they move and how much we want to identify them and say them out loud is, is a real conversation that, that the Jewish world uh, is having right now. Some to your point about what do we tolerate, you know, what, what, what do we stand for, right? You know, and some of that is about, is exactly this conversation. What is outside of what we say is tolerable deviance? Because I'm willing to go as far as tolerable deviance. I really am. This tent for me really should be wide enough to hold all the way from pluralism to tolerable deviance. I really believe that. It's not easy for me, but I believe that. Intolerable deviance, where's that line? That's, that's the hard question, right, for me. Thank you for your amazing attention this late at night. Thank you for coming out, those of you who came out. Thanks at home for joining us uh, at home. Um, have a great rest of your night.